And so what I'd like to talk to you about this morning is something that's near and dear to our hearts and also very basic and fundamental to our faith, and that is the resurrection. And in particular, I want to talk to you about the resurrection, not in terms of what men have to say about the resurrection and how men receive the resurrection. I want to talk to you with respect to uh, what the Bible teaches about the resurrection. I like to do it in the following way. Uh, first, I like to talk about the tomb. And I kind of introduced this idea where I had uh, some opening remarks with respect to the Lord's Supper, but I just want to kind of revisit that because, as you all know, I mean, this is one of the greatest events in human history that occurred here at the tomb. This is the culmination of hundreds of years of predictions coming to fruition um, at this place. Amen. And then I'd like to just have us, when we go from the tomb, let's just go back to Jesus and think about some things that he taught while he was here on earth. Then I'd like us to look at how Paul reinforced what Jesus taught uh, while Jesus was in heaven. So we know here that, you know, all the things that are taught in the gospel, essentially those ideas and principles that Jesus taught were reinforced by men who were guided by the Holy Spirit. That's how the Spirit and the Son and the Father were working together. Things that were laid out in the Gospels were reinforced and operationalized and further articulated um, in the letters. And so I'd like to just go over briefly uh, what Paul uh, taught with respect to what Jesus taught. And then uh, I'd like to kind of finish up by talking about our works. That is, our works uh, here on earth. And this is directly uh, tied into what we were talking about this morning. And related to our works, what is our hope? And then finally, I'd like to talk to you about heaven. And I think, I think the last sermon I gave when we were actually meeting uh, together, I had talked about heaven. And I had talked about this idea of trying to spend more time uh, thinking about heaven and talking about heaven. And so I'd like to continue in that vein and close up by uh, talking about heaven. So first, let's go back to the tomb. And so, you know, it's kind of remarkable uh, what happened first in terms of after Jesus was crucified, as if that wasn't enough, there was still a concerted effort now to bury, no pun intended, the idea of a resurrection. So notice what happened in Matthew chapter 27 where it says the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. So I just want you to just notice a couple of things here. First of all, this term of... Uh, referring to Jesus as a deceiver, you know, you can see here the, the work of Satan and how he's driving these men because they are calling the life giver the deceiver and actually the reality is they are the ones that were deceived by not believing what he had taught with respect to the resurrection. And the other thing I'd like you to notice is in verse 64, the idea that these men think that a whole, uh, a whole religious movement uh, that a whole uh, effort to serve God could be based on a stolen body. That someone could steal our body and build an entire religion and have generation upon generations of people follow that religion, follow those ideas based on a stolen body. 
So the idea here is that the thinking uh, with respect to uh, Jesus and his resurrection was not very uh, logical. But nonetheless, they proceeded and said, take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting the seal, a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So once again, it's just interesting that they think, that these men think that a whole movement and generations of people would follow a religion that is based simply on someone stealing a body. And also we know that that idea is, is really preposterous because if you suppose that a religion was based simply on a stolen body that people stole from a tomb and tucked away somewhere and then started creating a doctrine upon, men, upon which men can follow, it just doesn't make sense. And we know, of course, what actually happened in Luke chapter 24, but on the first day of the week. And the remarkable thing is that's on this day, the day that we come together and meet, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek? the living one among the dead. He is not here, but he has risen. So notice here, the phrase that's interesting is, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Jesus said that he was going to rise on the third day. He rose on the third day. And the angels are saying, why are you seeking him among the dead? He is now risen. And he is alive. And all that was prophesied in Moses and the law, and the prophets, and all that Jesus said in the Gospels was actually uh, fulfilled at this moment. So now I'd like us just to go back and look at, given all of this, and given the fulfillment of the moment in terms of the prophecies, and that once the uh, Jesus was uh, resurrected, and it was clear he had risen from the dead, I'd like us just first now to reflect for a moment on Okay, what did our Savior focus on while he was here on earth? What were some of the primary things that he taught while he was here on earth? Now, I'd like this to go back and notice very early on in Jesus' ministry, as told through the Gospel of John, what was his focus. So in John chapter 3 and verse 2, it says, referring to Nicodemus, and remember now, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And, you know, I think what this verse is showing us, if you really stop and reflect and think about who Nicodemus was, given that he was a ruler of the Jews, and why I think it's easy to kind of discount Nicodemus because he was a Pharisee, and there's a tendency to think about the negative aspects of being a Pharisee because of their opposition to Jesus, on the positive side, this was a man who was very steeped in the law. He knew the law of Moses. He knew about the prophets. He knew his Old Testament inside and out. And I think in verse 2, we're starting to see here that he wanted to engage Jesus. And notice in verse 3 how Jesus answered him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the thing I want you to notice now, if you look at verses 2 and 3, this is in some ways a microcosm of what we were talking about this morning. Because remember this morning we were talking about the law, being justified by the law, and Moses and the prophets. But the only way that we can be justified is through Christ. I think verse 2 is the Old Testament. Here comes Nicodemus, steeped in the Old Testament, steeped in the law, wanting to engage Jesus in a conversation around religion and things pertaining to God. And I think in that context, verse 3 becomes even more interesting because out of all the things that Jesus could have covered, think about it, when you want to engage with a leader of the Jews and all the things that he could have discussed with Nicodemus, he says... Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, he was telling Nicodemus, you're going to have to start over. You are going to have to, if, yes, I know you are well steeped in the Old Testament and the law and the Moses and the prophets, and you know a lot pertaining to God. But what you have to start with, the place you have to start, is by being born again. You have to experience a spiritual rebirth. You're going to have to get a new birth certificate, one that is spiritual, and one that is in heaven. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is what... Jesus wanted a man who was very knowledgeable about the law, about God. He wanted him to understand, first of all, you have to be born again. And you've got to be born of the water and the spirit. Verse 6 says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so it it was going to require a new birth. In order to enter this kingdom, one had to be born again. What you were in the flesh would mean nothing in this kingdom. What you had to do was be born again of the Spirit. And then notice, Paul reinforced this very teaching, but gives us even deeper insight into what Jesus meant when he talked about this spiritual rebirth. So notice in Romans chapter 6 and also in Colossians 2, 11-13, it expresses a very similar idea. Verse 3 says, or Don't you know that all of us, who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism in death. Why? Like, why is it so important to be baptized? Why is it so important to be immersed in water? Is it because we simply want to see uh, Nathan uh, put on some clothing and take someone and dump them into water and pull them out? Is it because it's some particular doctrinal aspect of the Bible that we hold near and dear to our hearts? No. Notice what it says in verse 4. It says, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. This is about the resurrection. This is about what we saw at the tomb. It says, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. We were talking about glory this morning. And that we all fall short of the glory of God. Here it's saying, Christ is raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. We too may live a new life. 
Amen. And so I know, brethren, that this is a this is a first principles lesson. And they say, well, yes, you know, we know that. But I think this is it's important to go back here because you know what this verse is teaching us is first of all, you need to be baptized in order to connect to the death of Jesus. There's no other way to do that. You can't do it by praying. You can't do it by confessing. You can't do it by dancing around and cutting yourself. There's the way you do this is you've got to be baptized to connect to his death. It tells us that. And not only that, the importance of it is because you have to change who you are as a person. You have to take lay aside the old man. And you've got to put on a new man. And you have to take, put, get a sense of purpose of living for God. It says, we too may live a new life. So this is, this is a very important point about uh, Christianity and also about the resurrection and also about our hope in heaven, which I'll have more to say about. But this has to do with heaven because if you can't get this first step right, everything else you do is a moot point. It is a mistake. It is, it is futile, a futile effort. And I like to uh, just say a few more things about this in terms of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So remember now, we're talking about coming up out of the water and you're supposed to be living a new life. So the question becomes, well, what am I supposed to do? How do I live this new life? And so, first of all, Paul says, well, you got to realize, first of all, it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, a lot of this relates to what we talked about this morning. And this is not from yourselves. You didn't do anything in order to even have the opportunity to have this relationship with God. See, we're talking about the opportunity to be reconciled with God. The opportunity to have a relationship with God. The opportunity to become a part of His family. It, says, it is a gift. Not by works. We talked about that this morning. It's not by the works of the law. Why? So that no one can boast. So we're talking about being just, we can't be justified by the law. In other words, we can't say, well, I came up out of the water, and here are the things I'm going to do, because these things are going to make me right with you, God. I can stand before you, because look at what I have done. And the Bible says, nope, it doesn't work that way. It's not by works, so that no one can boast. So what does that mean? Like, we don't have to do any work to get to heaven? No, now look at verse 10. Verse 10 is just a, a very clever and very profound uh, uh, alteration of this concept of works, because look what it says. For we are God's handiwork. So you see how it's been flipped around? In verse 9, it was people were like, well, maybe there's something I can do. There's works that I can do so that I can say, hey, I'm right with God. It's like, no. First you've got to understand in verse 10, for we are God's handiwork. How are we His handiwork? Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So now we're back to the, first of all, the baptism part. How are we created in Christ Jesus? We were baptized into his death. It is through Christ that we connect with God and we come out of that water. And what are we ready to do? It says to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that's really what I'd like you to have as the main takeaway up to this point. See, the argument about faith versus works, it's not about whether you work or whether you don't work. It's about boasting 
working so you can boast, verse 9, or being, seeing yourself as God's handiwork, doing works that God has prepared since the foundation of the world. These are works that He set up, not us. And as a consequence, because He set them up, it is a reminder to us that everything we do, whether it's the effort as a member, effort as a deacon, effort as an elder, effort, effort, effort collectively, we are all God's handiwork created in Christ. And the works that we're doing, the only reason why they mean anything to God is because he prepared them for us to do. And we, and we justify ourselves by doing what he asks us to do. But we've got to do things to get to heaven now. Let's be clear about that. You have, we, there is an expectation that we do work. It's just we can't boast on them. And the other thing is we should, we should, we should have enthusiasm for this. We should be inspired by this because these are eternal works. Or part of, I should say, not eternal works, but this is part of an eternal plan. This is part of the eternal plan before the foundation of the world. God decided this is what I will have my creation do in order to be made, made right with me as long as they do it within my son, Jesus Christ. I want to illustrate this whole idea of works God prepared in advance. That's really important because this shows, but, you know, in religion sometimes, because people get so emotional, they think, and, and also because it is obviously based on faith, but there's also a logic to the faith. Like, I think sometimes people, in terms of religion, they just say, oh, well, because it's faith, it's like anything goes. It's like, no, if you really read the Bible, you understand that there's a logic of God that we access through faith. Now, I want to just show you the logic in this way. I would suspect that, I could be wrong, but I would suspect that many of you have encountered when you were in eighth grade or you were in middle school the infamous algebra word problem. I don't know if you remember the algebra word problems. You remember, and particularly the ones of the distance kind, the distance problem, but traveling at different rates. Like, and here's one example, you know, buses traveling at an average rate of 50 kilometers per hour made the trip from town in six hours. If it had traveled at 45 kilometers per hour, how many minutes would it have taken to make the trip? And so you were supposed to figure out the algebra that you need to do, understand the problem, figure out the algebra, do the uh, problem, and get the right answer. And the thing that always amazed me about these problems is the key to it, no matter how much algebra you knew, the key to it was always the setup. I don't know if you remember that, where you had to, so in this case you had to set up the, the table, the, run, the RT, RTD table, the rate, time, and distance table. And once you set up the table, then you could get to work of filling in the table, doing the arithmetic, and ultimately doing the algebra, <laughs> and ultimately... Uh, arriving at the You should answer. look at the screen, Mom. But oftentimes, I get the wrong answer, and it always amazed me when I go to talk to my teacher. So I said, oh, well, you, you know, it was the way you set it up. You didn't set it up right. <laughs> and so even though I did a, a lot of work, I did my best work, and I thought I had the right answer, the problem was in the setup. That was the key. And to me, it, it, baptism and the idea of baptism and works that were prepared since the foundation of the world is the same idea. There's a lot of denominations. There's a lot of religious activity, even right now in the pandemic. There's churches springing up everywhere, and you read about churches that are out doing different things. Uh, but just like the algebra problem, 
see that in terms of the, the analogy here is uh, with the algebra problem, and this is just one framework. It's not the only way to think about this, obviously. But it's, a, it's an, it's an uh, illustration of we're faced with the problem of sin and death. And the solution to that problem, as I'm showing here, is to be baptized into Christ and crucify the old man and come up and begin to partake of the works that were prepared in advance since the foundation of the world. You've got to get that part right. You've got to understand there's a problem with sin and death. And the solution, first of all, is you have got to be baptized into Christ and crucify that old man. And once you do that, then you can begin to engage in the works that have been prepared in advance since the foundation of the world. And while we don't have time to explore it now in this lesson, the other piece is, this is why the church is so important. So you just can't, the other piece of it is you just can't go off by yourself now. Say, well, okay, I'm going to do the works prepared since the foundation of the world. I'm going to go off my own. No, because we know from Ephesians that those works and what we're supposed to do for God has been, been made manifold, made revealed through the manifold wisdom of God, which is the responsibility of the church. And the church is responsible for maintaining his word. And it's his word where we learn what the works are that we're supposed to do. So if you can't get this initial part right, everything else, just like the algebra problem, you can do eloquent algebra, you can do eloquent arithmetic, you can do, have all sorts of eloquent steps in here, but you know what's going to happen? You're going to come up with the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. You will end up with the wrong answer. And that's, this is how I would describe uh, our denominationalism and, which, and why we have all this religious activity that is ultimately irrelevant and not futile and, 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 and is futile. So you may say, well, you know, brother, that sounds kind, that sounds kind of uh, dogmatic. That sounds kind of harsh. That sounds kind of narrow-minded. You're kind of saying to me, if I don't set this thing up right, that uh, I could get the wrong answer because the answer is about how do we get to heaven? How do we live forever? How do we deal with this problem of sin and death? And I would say to you, oh, yes, I don't think I'm being too narrow-minded because look what this was being said in Matthew. Uh, seven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, there's going to be a lot of people in shock. A lot of religious people in shock on the day of judgment. Because they didn't set it up right. They wanted to do it their way. Not the way the Bible describes it. They didn't take seriously this idea that there are works that were created since the foundation of the world including the work of the church. And the only way you can understand that is you've got to do it God's way. And it, it kind of makes sense, right? Because he prepared the word. <laughs> the foundation of the world. So he has no right to expect, to set the expectations for what we need to do. And if you even think about it, it makes more sense. We want to dwell with him in eternity, but yet we want to do it our way. Does that make any sense? No. It needs to be done his way. And so people who said, well, came up with ways and done away, said, oh, you know what? Some people just wake up and say, I'm going to go down and feed the homeless. Huh. Well, uh, if feeding the homeless was something that the, the elders said, hey, you know, I think this is something important that we should do as a church, and, and, and it would be an opportunity for us to, to, to share the gospel He's with people track. as we help them He's to feed their uh, stomachs. We can Going try to feed their trail. souls. That's one thing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Nothing. Just say, well, you know, I, I just think this is a good word. Stan's got his mic on. Home. 
Students. Nice. giving out money to charities. And I think that's going to justify me before God. And I'm going to do this in the name of the Lord. And so I think that's going to justify me. It's those kinds of people where it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? See, these are the, these are the works that are outside of the works that were prepared since the foundation of the world. And in your name, drive out demons, and in your name, perform many miracles. And I can tell you right now, if you haven't done that as a result of being in Christ, because remember those works, we were, we were created in Christ. We're to be God's handiwork. We're to be directed by God in what we're doing. There are going to be many disappointed people on that day. And this is why. So this is what I'm trying to get at. I was trying to get at the why. Well, how could this happen? How could you have, because you're going to have literally billions of people on that day. It's going to be a terrible day. Billions of people expecting to get in, to get a reward, get into heaven. And he's going to say, you cannot, you can't enter. And so, clearly our works here on earth matter. And remember, we're not just talking about any works. We're talking about the works that are described in the Bible. And in John chapter 5, notice I'm going to go back to Jesus. This is, again, this is very early on in his ministry. You have to tell people, hey, first of all, particularly the Jews, you've got to start over. You've got to be born again. You've got to become a new person. And you've got to commit your life to, to change, to growing, to getting better doing good works. Verse 24, John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, see, so this, this is now we're getting, we're getting, we're getting some boundaries. Okay, you want to do, you want to do works? Yeah, but it's got to be consistent with like what I'm saying. Here's, here's my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. I want to be clear now, connecting back to the earlier slide, the good deeds are those things that God has ordained in Christ Jesus. Those things that God has asked us to do in Christ Jesus so that no man can boast, but we can put our hope in Christ that those things that we do are acceptable to God. We'll get a reward, a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds. What are the evil? Now, see, the thing that's interesting about evil deeds is they don't, let's not talk about murdering or lying. I would suggest to you that the evil deeds are anything that doesn't fall into this category of the works that he prepared since the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus. So on the surface, it can look like a good deed, like feeding the homeless. But if it was, if I'm feeding the homeless so I can say, look what I've done. See what a good person I am? See how charitable I am? I, I should get a place in heaven. But no, those are evil deeds. That's an evil deed. Anything that's outside of what God has asked us to do through his word in his son is an evil deed. And that's going to lead to a resurrection of judgment. So I hope also that makes it a little clearer when people say, well, I'm a good person. I go, wait a minute. You remember when the, uh, Jesus was speaking to the crowd and they said, then good teacher. He says, why do you call me good? 
Only God alone is good. And I don't think Jesus was saying he was bad. I think what he was saying is God is the one who determines what is good. God is the one who ordains what is good. And so, those who commit the evil deeds, that is, who decided that they're going to do what they want to do, even if it's in the, in the name of religion, is going to come to a resurrection of the judgment. And the last thing you know, I'd like to just say about uh, verse 29 is, you know, that verse is really powerful because what it says is, everyone's going to experience a resurrection. And everyone's going to live forever. Do you realize that? You know, there's a verse, I think it's in Ecclesiastes, I could be wrong, uh, where it talks about, you know, we return to the dust of the earth and the spirit goes back to God. Why? Because see, God, remember in the beginning, he pulled the uh, dust of the earth and he breathed life into Adam and he became a living being. The spirit comes from God. And we know the things that God creates are eternal. That's his spirit. And so that's why it does not get destroyed. Everyone's going to be uh, resurrected. The question is, where do you want to spend your eternity? Everyone's going to live forever. The question is, where do you want to spend eternity? Do you want to spend it in the glory and the splendor and the greatness and the majesty of God? Or do you want to spend it in the eternal fire where the where the fire does not, uh, the, what is it, the worm is not quenched and the fire does not, does not die out. And I might have it backwards, but that doesn't matter. Because the fact of the matter is, it is a terrible place. Uh-huh. And we, you won't be, if, if I were to end up there, I would not be splitting hairs over no, the worm or the fire that didn't die out. <laughs> it's going to be, whatever it is, I want it to die out. Because this place is horrible. Uh-huh. And it will never end. Amen. And so, uh, everyone will experience a resurrection. So on a positive note, again, I hope uh, we will all be encouraged in the midst of this pandemic because I think God expects us to have our hope no matter what the circumstance. Um, and, and in some Amen. ways, you know, there's this rush to return back to normal with respect to the pandemic. That's what the world is saying. We can only get back to normal. Yeah. And I would suggest to you from a spiritual perspective, that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Because getting back to normal is basically saying, can we just go back to sinning mm-hmm. and living our lives and denying that God exists? I don't think we need to return to normal. I think we need to help people understand that this pandemic should have opened everyone's Nathan eyes to our need for God. Because God forbid one of us <laughs> to be stricken by COVID-19. Hmm. But I think the difference is we all understand <coughs> that we have oh. hope, no matter what our circumstances. And look at our hope. Remember how encouraging it must have been to Martha and Mary when Jesus came, when Lazarus had died. And you remember that Jesus specifically stayed where he was a few more days just so that Lazarus could die. Because he wanted to, he wanted us to be able to see we were talking in Romans about the glory of God. He wanted us to see the glory of God and the power of the resurrection in the midst of the sorrow. Do you remember, uh, Martha was crying, uh, Mary was crying, the Jews were weeping, and Jesus himself ended up weeping. That's how, how uh, <coughs> sorrowful this uh, situation was. But notice Jesus said to her, and this is John 11. And this one is to think about how encouraging 
uh, this must have been. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's See, that's interesting because Martha didn't, didn't know believe that. in the yeah, resurrection. She knew. But to the limits, like she didn't really understand <clears throat> Jesus could raise Lazarus right then and there. That's how powerful he, he was and is. And so Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. <clears throat> Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he's basically saying the same thing here. You're not going to die when you're in him. Yeah, you may, you may fall asleep. Remember how Jesus often referred to people who had, who in the world, from the world perspective, he'd say they died. But from his perspective, they would just sleep. Asleep. Because he had the power just to wake them up, raise them up. And it's the same for us. Either you know, that as or Christians, frozen. we want to understand we don't die in the way the world thinks of death. We go to sleep. And we're going to be, uh, when people gather for our funeral or our memorial service or wherever it is, at that time the Spirit's going back to God. And we are, if you believe the, the parable of the uh, rich man and um, Lazarus, we're being carried off by the angels in the, into the bosom of Abraham to sit in paradise. And wait for the trumpet call. So when we get in the twinkling of an eye, we are changed. So that's what we have to look forward to. But he says, everyone who lives, verse 26, and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that's the question I would put out to us all today. Do you, do you believe it? Not only do you believe it, do you live like you believe it? And people look at you and say, you know what, this person, he or she, she lives her life as if she has hold of eternal life. She's not getting all anxious and bent out of shape over a pandemic. As horrible as it is, they're taking action. You can take action. Uh, we're not experiencing anxiety and angst and worry and trouble. Look what we have to look forward to in Luke chapter 20. He says, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. <clears throat> they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels. Who want to be like angels? And are sons of God, being sons of what? Sons of the resurrection. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. So just... So, you know, I think one takeaway from this verse is just by definition, as Christians who believe, believe in God, we cannot die. Because God is not the God of the dead. I remember Steve and I had a conversation about this um, at the building we were meeting. And he had done uh, a lesson uh, similar to this, or made a point similar to this. This idea, he is not the God of the dead, he is the God of the living. So we put our faith and trust in him, and we set things up right in terms of we've been born again, we've been born into his family. And we've come up out of the water and we've committed our lives to putting aside the old man and putting on a new man. And each day we're trying to get better and improve and change who we are and, and engage in the works that God has prepared since the foundation of the world. He is the God. He is our God. And as our God, we must by definition always live. Because He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. 
And that's, and that's the message we want to be taking out to people in the midst of a pandemic. We have a God who is the God of the living, no matter what the circumstances are and what we face. And we should be following him. And we should not, if this pandemic desires uh, to be going back to normal, we need to change and repent as a nation and as people and turn back to him. And notice what the Ephesian writer says, and what is this passing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. See, you know, the, I mean, God made it look easy, but it's, this verse is saying the working of the strength of his might, that's he, what, look in verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Bible there is telling us God raised Jesus up from death. And then he exalted him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So far, he, he has exalted him so far, so high, there's nothing here on earth that can touch it. It says, far above all rule, verse 21, authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, anything you want, power, prestige, job title, none of it comes even close to the power and authority and the majesty that's been ascribed to Jesus as a result of him coming here, living on earth as we talked this morning, being perfect, showing the glory of God, and, and being willing to die on a cross in our place. That's what propitiation is. In our place. Amen. So that we could have the hope of eternal life. And notice, you know, what's encouraging, far above our rule in verse 21, far above our rule and authority and the power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There is an afterlife, brethren, without question. And I know we all believe that, and we got to help other people believe it. The Bible is clear about that. Repeatedly, unabashedly, uh, eloquently, and directly, and forcefully. It's like, hey, this thing is never over. It, there is an eternity waiting for us. And we, it's up to us how we want to spend it. So finally, and you've all been incredibly patient. I know this is probably a bit long, but it's 10.52, so I'll, I'll wrap up in, in uh, a couple of minutes. So are you willing to, to dream with me? To just, let's just think about heaven. You know, we sing a song, wouldn't it be wonderful there? And that's what that song is designed to, designed to get at. And I think that has been one, you know, um, real downside of this pandemic. I know we all kind of miss the singing, being able to sing together. And this song gets at that idea. Like, wouldn't it be wonderful there? So what is, what is heaven like? And of course, I'm just going to just scratch the surface once again. And the goal here is not to offer a theological, theologically exhaustive coverage of heaven, because in some ways I think that, that would do it a great disservice. This is about our reward. I'm just thinking about the reward. Like, what is, uh, after laboring here on earth, what is the purpose? What do we have to look forward to? Notice in 1 Corinthians, Paul there wrote, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. 
for the trumpet will sound and the dead will raise and be raised imperishable and we will be changed. See, the beauty of that is, you know, there, there's certain, I know there's certain aspects of my physical makeup that I wish I could change. Um, in other words, I don't like particularly. Uh, so I was just saying, you don't have to worry about that. Now, we're going to be changed into something magnificent for the, and, 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 and immortal. For this perishable must, be, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on, and notice the word there, must put on immortality. That's for those that are in him. It, it is a done deal. It is inevitable. And we have followed him and been faithful to him. It says, verse 53, for this perishable must put on the imperishable. Well, you know, maybe it could have possibly, no. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on the immortality. And then notice in Revelation 22, so remember the, um, I didn't have a chance to put this slide up here, but remember Mo had put up that slide that showed how we should live on earth. Uh, then there's the intermediate, our intermediary place when we're waiting for the last trumpet to sound and the Lord to come back and him to kingdom back to God and then we're in heaven. We're in paradise. And then ultimately we will be in heaven. And notice, this is just in Revelation 22, uh, the writer here is trying to give us some sense of what's going to be there in heaven when we're in heaven. So, Think about your, think about your favorite vacation place, your favorite place of vacation, that place where you think about the opportunity to go there and spend some time and put a smile on your face. Heaven is going to just blow that away. Notice, first of all, the river. It's going to be a river. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. See, there'll be no death there. There'll be no pandemic. There will be no dying of pancreatic cancer or coronavirus or... See, we, you know, coronavirus has overshadowed all the other diseases. There's a lot of other diseases killing Americans, too. Or killing people, not just Americans, killing people all over the world. A disease will be done away with. There's a river. The angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So we'll be able to see the throne of God and the Lamb and the river of life. And it's going to be bright like crystal. Oh, and there's the tree of life. Remember, Adam and Eve had, had access to that. And then we lost that because of sin. We talked about that. We uh, at least alluded to it this morning in the Romans class. But now, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. I think that's just kind of signifies that the, the, the uh, heaven is just going to be full of life. You've got the life giver there. We'll have our new bodies. We'll, we'll, we'll have a sense of immortality. And, and the, I think the mind-blowing thing about it is it will never end. Like that's the one I have a hard time wrapping my head around. Eternity. It will just go on and on. You know, think about your best day that you had. And then ultimately here on earth, it's followed up by some not so great days. But every day in heaven is a great one. And you've got the tree of life. And you've got the leaves. Notice for the healing of the nations. And, and you know, have you ever thought about the fact, there'll be people from all over the world in heaven. 
There have been people from generations to generations in countries all over the world that have served God. They will be there. And I think that's what this talk about, the healing of the nations. Because for once, we'll have people from China, from India, from Africa, uh, from Thailand, from Sweden. They'll all be there and we will not be at war. And, we won't, and there won't be the threat of war. Someone plotting to, to put together a nuclear bomb to wipe out one nation over another. We won't have that. We will be there as, as one. And I think that's why, you know, Nathan has been making this point about, uh, uh, you know, in Romans about the Jew and the Gentile. You won't have Jew and Gentile at odds with one another. And while Nathan has been making the point about as a congregation, you know, there should be a sense of unity and working together because if we can't have the healing of the nations within our congregation, how can we expect to have the healing of the nations in heaven? Well, in fact, no, we won't be tolerated in heaven. We won't make it in heaven. <laughs> If we can't demonstrate an ability to get along with others on earth, how can we expect to uh, be able to enter heaven? But there'll be uh, the healing of the nations. And then can you imagine the throne? No longer will there be anything accursed. Right? It's going to be all good. Goodness. And But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will, be worship, will, will worship Him. So, you know, we, we think we worship now. I mean, we will have an opportunity to worship the Lamb and God. Oh, and here's the other thing. We will see God. Now, think about that one for a moment. Because remember, the Bible's been clear. It says, no man has seen God. And, and the other part is that when you've been in God's presence, you want to see Him. Remember Moses, with his relationship with God, it got so good, Moses said, please, show me thy glory. Moses begged God to show him who he was, which kind of indicates once you're, once you're working with God or you're in God's presence and you begin to fully know who he is, you want to see him. And God told Moses, no man can see me and live. I can show you my back. You know? So we, when it says no man has seen God, I think it's talking about no one has seen God as he truly is. Like, you know, Mo covered on uh, in, in uh, first when 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy in our Wednesday night Bible study covered this idea, he draws an unapproachable light. He's so magnificent. But we will see him. It says they will see his face. And his name will be on their forehead. See, what he's talking about, what he's talking about there is, remember we, he said he's the God of the living. <laughs> I think this is talking My about we will, they will, we will be his. And as a consequence, we will live and we will live forever. But we will see God. And related to this and the whole idea of the unapproachable light, and night will be no more. There will be eternal sunshine. There will, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. And that's the hard one for me, brethren, the eternal aspect of this. Amen. And the flip side of that, you know, if you don't, if you're not born again, and you and, and you're not, you come out of that water, and you're not, and I haven't been putting forth a sincere and honest effort to change daily who I am in terms of the Word and being, as Romans chapter twelve verses one through two talks about, being transformed and renewed in my mind through the Word to become the kind of person that can do the works. That God has prepared since the foundation of the world. 
so that we can dwell with him forever and ever. So I guess to conclude, I hope I've made the point. I know you all understand this. I, I, let me just put it this way. I hope I have reinforced. I know you, you understand this and, and you believe this. I hope I have reinforced the eternal consequences of what we do uh, here on earth. And we've got to get it set up right. And we've got to help other people get it set up right. Uh, I think sometimes, you know, the world, and I'll, I'll wrap up here, but the world can just slowly kind of move us from, you know, Ephesians is clear, there's one Lord, there's one faith. This is, this is getting back to the algebra problem and the setup. There's one faith and there's one baptism. I think it's interesting, you know, the people who might say, well, brother, you're putting a lot of emphasis on baptism. Well, Ephesians, when it gave the list of one, it says one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Not multiple baptisms, not multiple purposes for baptism. There's one baptism. And because of what is at stake, and this is uh, what is at stake, our great reward. And it's all possible because of Jesus. Uh, and I think that's the, that was the big point in terms of works prepared. That we were created in Christ Jesus to perform the works that God prepared for us since the foundation of the world. So our glory and honor go to the Father and to the Son. And so at this time, uh, let us uh, remember, as we're led in prayer, let us remember these things about our Lord and what He's done for us. Thank you for listening.